0: discipline. It's an uncomfortable word. It's a word many of us don't like. For most Christians, when you speak about discipline, they really have no idea what you're talking about unless it's in the realm of what they grew up with. The, the practice of church discipline has become a vague memory of the past been lost in the midst of ancient memories, even though it probably should not have been. Amen. For those who don't know what I'm talking about and don't understand what this concept is, let me just go ahead and tell you that preaching about this this morning as a part of the life of the church is about as desirable as a dental procedure with no anesthetic <laughs> or an infestation of bed bugs in your home. As uncomfortable as it might be for you to think about it, I promise you it is equally uncomfortable for me to talk about it. When we start talking about church discipline, for many it brings up memories of a a bygone era when churches would denounce the sins of its members while calling for and and expecting them to turn from their sin and and re-engage upon a path to righteousness. Some groups were known to practice what was called shunning. Y'all familiar with that term? It's where everyone in the church body would simply turn their back. They would not talk to them. They would not speak to them. They would not acknowledge them. They would act as if that individual simply did not walk upon the same earth that they did. That's pretty tough. The origin of the practice of, of church discipline is not based upon the attitudes of some pharisaical church members, even though that's how many people choose to believe it. But rather, it's found in the Word of God. And it begins with what I was sharing with our children down here a few moments ago, that our God is our Father, and as a loving Father, He disciplines His children. He calls for us to live in a way that presents Him and His family in a good light. Sometimes we do well, and then there are other times when we don't do so well. But for those who've never heard about church discipline, and I I would figure there are some in this room, and for those who've never heard any discussion about it, and I would confidently say there are probably a lot of folks like that in this room, this morning I want us to discuss discipline within the family. And so if you brought a Bible, I want to invite you to take it and turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 5. And we're going to read together this chapter from Paul's letter. Wait a minute, this chapter, yeah, it's only 13 verses, folks, okay? Don't panic. Because I want us to, to, to see what Paul had to say to a church that was struggling with a member, members who were making bad choices. And we need to understand, my father always told me, he said, son, you're going to be known by the company you keep. He told me, he said, it it, it takes you a lifetime to build a reputation, but you can destroy it in an instant. And once it's gone, it's almost impossible to rebuild. My father told me, your word is your bond. If you say this is what you are, it's what you are. If you say this is what I'm going to do, that's what you do. And the reason he was teaching me these lessons was he wanted me to understand something that he one time impressed very clearly upon my backside. That the choices we make and the actions we engage in always reflect upon your family. And you want to honor your family, not dishonor them. I believe that that's God's instruction. As our father, he wants to be honored by his family, by his children. I want us to see how Paul addressed this with the church of Corinth. So if you've got your Bible open, chapter 5, we're going to read all 13 verses together. But if you can, Will, I'm going to invite you to stand with me in honor of our fathers. We read this morning from his holy and inspired word. Follow along with me. Paul writes to the church in Corinth. He said, it's actually reported that there is sexual immorality among you, uh, and of a kind that does not occur even among pagans. A man has his father's wife, and you're proud. Shouldn't you rather have been filled with grief and have put out of your fellowship the man who did this? Even though I'm not physically present, I am with you in spirit. And I've already passed judgment on the one who did this, just as if I were present When you are assembled in the name of our Lord Jesus and I'm with you in spirit and the power of our Lord Jesus is present, hand this man over to Satan so that the sinful nature may be destroyed and his spirit saved on the day of the Lord. Your boasting is not good. Don't you know that a little yeast works through the whole batch of dough? Get rid of the old yeast that you may be a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. I've written you in my letter not to associate with sexually immoral people, not at all meaning the people of this world who are immoral or the greedy and swindlers or idolaters. In that case, you would have to leave this world. But now I'm writing you. That you must not associate with anyone who calls himself a brother, but is sexually immoral or greedy, an idolater or a slanderer, a drunkard or a swindler. With such a man do not even eat. What business is it of mine to judge those outside the church? Are you not to judge those inside? God will judge those outside. Expel the wicked man from among you. Would you pray with me? Father I pray this morning that we would hear your word that even in our stubborn hearts and rebellious spirits that we would hear it and receive it today. And Father I pray that you would teach us your truth and teach us your ways, call us to walk in them and live according to them. But Father above everything else, I pray that today as your family worships and as your spirit speaks, That if there is one in this room who does not know you, that today your spirit would convict them of sin and call them to come to the Savior. Father, shine your light into our lives. Reveal the truth. And have your way in our lives. This is our prayer. And we ask it in the precious name of Jesus Christ, our Lord and Savior. And all God's people said, Amen. You may be seated. (laughs) Many churches have done away with discipline because of lawsuits they faced. Some because they simply don't want the world to see them as being judgmental of others. Others ended the practice because, well... They didn't value holiness and righteousness enough to engage in an activity that might offend someone. And folks, I'm not going to sit here and make it sound better than it is. I'm just going to tell you right up front, it's difficult to engage in discipline. But sometimes it is absolutely necessary. But we need to understand what this is. We need to understand how it came about. And we need to understand what the desired ending is If this task is undertaken. And so I want us to spend a few moments just trying to get a hold of this idea of church discipline. And I venture a guess and say that there's some in this room who've never heard anything about what I'm talking about. So let's just get down to this and begin by, if we might, taking a moment to examine a biblical and historical understanding of this. And you say, oh boy, this sounds like it's going to be boring. It's really not. We need first off to understand biblical discipline among biblical people. Because you see, the church that Paul was writing to was the first century church, and it was born out of the Jewish people, and the Jewish people practiced discipline within their own religion. All you've got to do is go into the Old Testament and read the Mosaic Law. There are sins specified, and there are specific responses, punishments, disciplines that were meted out to those particular actions or sins. Various sins brought different punishments. Some were very severe, some were less severe. But the point in all of it was that people would be corrected. They would learn a better way. It was a teaching tool, not only for the one being disciplined, but for those who also observed this course of action being undertaken. The first century church arose out of Judaism. Virtually every church in the New Testament that we're aware of had within it a core of Jewish people who had become early believers and were part of it, and they took discipline very seriously. The Dead Sea community at Qumran existed during the time when Paul was engaged in ministry and was writing. And some of their own writings that have been found in the caves alongside the scroll remnants revealed that they would impose specific penalties upon members of the community for specific offenses. The early church and those Jewish converts within understood the concept Paul, in his writings, as we read through them, we begin to understand that even some, at some point, the, the, the teachings of the synagogue were bleeding over into the church. And if you'll study the teachings of the synagogue, there were four distinct levels of discipline that were exercised upon the members of the Jewish community, and, and they find their way in to Paul's writings. Discipline could be harsh and final, or it could be difficult but redemptive. Let me explain In Acts chapter 5, we find the record of a man and his wife by the name Ananias and Sapphira. Now, I say that and some of you say, ooh, yeah. We remember Ananias and Sapphira. It was the early days of the church. And they came before the apostles to make a gift. Nothing wrong with that. The church always stands ready to receive your gifts. The problem was that they had agreed together in heart, in mind, in spirit, and in word to lie to the church and to lie to the Holy Spirit. Ananias came first to the church and he pronounced his lie and it was recognized as such and he died. Now, listen, God can be very sudden, all right? A little while later. his wife Sapphira comes and she repeats the lie, and it was kind of like from the apostle Are you sure that's your story? You sure you want to stick with that one? Yes, I do. Well, the feet of the men who just carried your husband's body out to the graveyard are coming in the door now. Guess what? She died. My friends, this wasn't the apostles being mean. This wasn't the church poisoning the water or the communion juice. This was the Spirit of God pronouncing judgment. It was harsh and it was final. Now, if you read... Through Paul's letters, you find over in 2 Corinthians, chapter five or chapter two, verses five through eleven, he encouraged the church to forgive and restore to fellowship a repentant brother, one who had basically been pushed outside of the fellowship until such time as he would get his heart and his life right. It was a difficult lesson for him, but the purpose and the point was his repentance. It was difficult, but repentant. You move forward through this time period and come racing toward us, and I'm just going to make an observation. The church did not do very good with church discipline. We didn't handle it well at all. In fact, if you study history, particularly Christian history, church history, you'll read about the Spanish Inquisition. Folks, that was church discipline gone awry. You read about the martyrdom of John Huss, of Tyndale. You read about the persecution of the French Huguenots and various groups of Anabaptists on continental Europe. This was all church discipline gone awry. In the name of discipline and cleansing, many who were innocent of any wrongdoing scripturally perished. But it didn't stop there. You could travel to Geneva during the time of John Calvin. Same thing was going on. You could even come to our shores during the days of the New England Puritanism, and you could find that it happened even there. In more recent days, church discipline has been equated with some of the silliest things I've ever heard of in my life, and I hope I'm not offending anyone, but if I am, that's just how it falls. But churches have undertaken discipline to try to get rid of, of people playing cards or board games or dancing or any number of silly things that just really and truthfully don't hold water. And then there was a church in the Midwest back in the 80s. I remember reading about it. Engaged in a court battle with one of its members. Made national news. See, those are the types of things that said, made churches say, well, we're not going to do that anymore. We're not going to engage in that practice. So why on earth would I even bring it up when I'm teaching about church life if it's not something churches are going to do or engage in? Why talk about it? Because we live in an age where it seems that many people who call themselves believers hold the church in very low esteem and disregard the person of Jesus Christ and His holiness. And we need to understand we cannot hold the church nor the owner of the church in contempt. I think we need to reevaluate the need for such practices and, and, and engage, be willing to engage in constructive, redemptive, restorative church discipline. It's not about being angry with people. It's not about being mad or offended. It's not about getting even. If it's about any of those things, it's wrong to begin with. It's about us as brothers and sisters in Christ, a family of faith calling each other to live in righteousness and in holiness that brings glory and honor to our Savior and our King. Now, I want us to jump back into this chapter for a moment. And I, I want us... I want us to look at Paul's observations of, from and for Corinth. And I mean, I, I listen, I could spend hours in this chapter. I'm not going to do that to you, OK? But I, I do want you to get some things with me that I believe are very clear here, that a lot of people today are, are not so clear on. I want us to make sure that we have these truths ingrained in our hearts and in our minds because it affects the way that we live our lives today and every day. And I think we have to begin with a simple statement that says, sin is serious. We've come to a place in our culture where many people don't think sin is serious. They just kind of laugh about it. Well, you know, that's what they chose to do. It's not hurting anybody but themselves. Not true. Everything we do not only impacts us, but it impacts those who are close to us. It impacts those that we have relationships with. It impacts the church that we are identified with. It impacts the companies that we work for. It impacts, it impacts, it impacts not just us, but everyone around us as well. Sin is serious. Sin is serious because God says it's serious. Sin is serious. If it wasn't serious, why did Jesus die for it? Sin is serious. In 1 Corinthians 5, which we read together just a a moment ago, Paul wrote in opposition and condemnation of a case of basically incest within the church family. A man was with his father's wife. Not only did the church know what was going on, they were proud of it. They they boasted about it, Paul said. They they bragged about the fact that this man was free in the law. He was free in Christ to do whatever he chose to do. And they looked at him and said, isn't this cool? His actions are are identifying a new way of thinking. A new new way of acting. A a modern thought pattern. a, A new morality. Now I understand that right here in this book is the only undeniable, infallible truth, okay? But I want to tell you a truth that in my mind gets really close to it, but it's not on the level with Scripture. But I want you to hear this truth. Are you ready? When men speak of the new morality, it always turns out to be the old morality dressed up in new clothes. It always does. I've never seen that to not be true. So what did Paul do? Well, he commanded the church, break fellowship with this man. Break fellowship with him until he gets his heart right, until he gets his life right, until he turns away from that sin. Now, a lot of people today, particularly in our culture, would say, man, Paul's, Paul's command is too harsh. Well, we can't do that. What, what, if, what if people have chosen an alternative lifestyle? You mean sin. But what if they've chosen to engage this way? You're talking about sin. Don't call it what it's not. It's not an alternative lifestyle. It's sin. And when we begin to understand that sin is sin and address it as sin, then we can get down to what God calls us to do. But all across this land, there are churches that have decided to side with new cultural norms. Now, I'm like, ugh. I refuse to bite my tongue, folks. I'm just not going to do it. When the church chooses to side with new cultural norms and mores, it is no longer the church of Jesus Christ. That's just how it is. I'm sorry if that offends you, but you're, take it up with God. It's his word, not mine. There's something that my father taught me a long, long time ago, and I've had people tell me, Tim, you're too quick to bow up and want to argue about something. And maybe I am. But my father taught me when I was growing up that there is right and there is wrong, and at every point in life, you're going to have to choose which side of the fence you're going to stand on. And I say that to tell you this. Social acceptance implies ethical acceptance. There are a multitude of things in our world, in our culture, in our society, in our country that we need to, as God's people, take a stand against. I could sit here and list them all for you, but I think you've got a pretty good idea. But let me just throw a few at you for those of you who are sitting here looking back. Like, what in the world is he talking about? Abortion is sin. Does not mean I don't love people who go through the, the heartbreak and heartache of abortion, but it's wrong. Adultery homosexuality, theft, drunkenness, abuse, sexual, physical, spousal, mental, emotional abuse. It's wrong. Drug abuse and alcohol abuse that destroys families and destroys life. It's wrong. All of these things are wrong. And if we are not willing to stand up and say these things are wrong, then we are complicit in the sin because it's as if we're saying, oh, it's okay. Do what you want, God will get you past it. No. It's not like that. Sin is serious. It needs to be called out for what it is. Because there's something we forget about too often. Let me tell you what it is. Sin is contagious. Got your Bible? Look at verse 6, chapter 5. Paul writes to him, he says, Don't you know that a little yeast, a little leaven works through the whole batch of dough? You see, in Jewish thought, yeast or leaven represented evil, corrupting influences. So if there's a little bit there, you just let it be, and before long, it'll be all through everything. I had somebody say to me one time when I was preaching out of this chapter, you know, Pastor, it just seems strange to me. He makes that statement, and it's disconnected from everything around it. I said, are you kidding me? It's connected completely to everything he's saying right here. He's just identified the sin, the evil corrupting influence. Look at what he says immediately after that. Verse 7, get rid of the old yeast that you may have a new batch without yeast as you really are. For Christ, our Passover lamb, has been sacrificed. What has that got to do with anything? Therefore, let us keep the festival, not with the old yeast, the yeast of malice and wickedness, but with bread without yeast, the bread of sincerity and truth. This doesn't connect at all, pastor. It connects completely, brothers and sisters. Immediately before the feast of the Passover, Jewish families would clean their house. They would clean their home. They would take their bread starter. They'd had it for a year. It was fermenting. It had yeast. It had leaven in it. All they had to do was continue to add meal and flour to it. It would continue to grow because of the yeast and the leaven. At the end of the year, before the Feast of the Passover, when they cleaned their homes, they would throw that out. And they would take new grain from the harvest. And they would start all over. They would make a batch of dough. And it was without yeast. It was unfermented. It was without leaven. It was unleavened bread that was used to celebrate the Passover. Paul's saying the Passover lamb, Christ, has been sacrificed. Why do you still have this leavened dough in your home? Get it out! You don't have time to wait. You don't have time to think about it. Get it out right now. The lamb has been sacrificed and you have not yet discarded that old way of life, that, that leaven. Get it out of your life without delay. Because if you don't, it's going to affect and impact everything around you. Why? Because sin is contagious. Brothers and sisters, it's not easy. I want you to know that as Christians, we must always live in a constant tension with sin. We put it out, it climbs back in. <laughs> it's who we are. And Paul says, I'm not telling you to withdraw from the world. We we can't do that. As long as we're living and breathing, we're in this world. We cannot withdraw. We also have to be reminded that the Lord called us to be salt and light. And we can't be salt and light if we pull away from everyone and everything that he's placed around us. We cannot disengage from the world and still serve the Lord in the way he's called us to do. But he did call on them to withdraw fellowship from those who are engaging in sin regularly, happily, even if they claim to share our faith. Apparently they had it backwards. Kind of like I think a lot of folks today in the church do. Say, what do you mean by that? Read that chapter again for yourself. And you tell me if I'm not hitting it on the head here. They were willing to accept people who they called brother or sister who were practicing sin. Everybody knew what was going on. Everybody knew what was happening. Everybody knew what was going on. It dishonored the Lord. It brought a shadow upon the church. But they were willing to accept that because that's our brother or sister. But they were running away from people outside the church who were engaged in the same sin. Now, I'm not the brightest light in the fixture. But I think I can figure this one out. And so let me just give you, if I can, what I think Paul's instruction was for this church as he wrote it here. Don't be distraught over lost people acting like lost people. It's what they do. They don't know anything else to do. The reality is, love them, pray for them, love on them, share Jesus with them, cry for them. They are under God's judgment and don't even know it yet. Be broken. Grieve over those who call themselves by the name of Christ and yet live like they are lost. And if you have relationship with them, withdraw from that relationship. Maybe it will bring them to their senses so that they will seek repentance and restoration and holiness and righteousness. I think Paul wrote that entire chapter and then he, he found himself saying, I wonder if they'll get it. And so he ended with these words, God will judge those outside. Talking about people outside the church, outside the faith. And to the church, he said, expel the wicked man from among you. Divide. Whew. Man, isn't this just what you came to church to hear this morning? (laughs) I want to spend the remainder of our time trying to understand how to apply discipline. And I want you to understand, I'm not going to sit here and tell you, here's what we're going to do, step one, step two, step now. None of that. Most churches have a methodology for that. By the way, we do have. But there are some things that need to be planted in our heads and hearts before we even begin to think about or look at such a process. And I want to share those with you, if I might, very quickly before I conclude. The first is simply this. Church discipline should always be redemptive. We are not judges who are charged with meting out punishment to people who do not live up to the standard or expectation that we have according to the Word of God. We're a family of faith, we have a father. We are the body of Christ. We have a head. It is Christ himself. We are a family seeking to restore each member, each part to right relationship and right standing and right living. That must always be our goal. Discipline is not about inflicting pain. It is not about hurting. It is not about destroying. It is about teaching and learning and restoring and loving. Should always be redemptive. Second thing is that church discipline always belongs to the church. So, what do you mean by that? Read chapter 5. Paul called on the church, the entire body of believers, to act. Not just the pastors, the deacons, the elders, no, the church. Not just a few people who perhaps their sensibilities were offended or or they took offense at something that was said or done, but the church. Now understand, if it is a church issue, then it is already a known issue. It's not that you found out about something and now you're going to go and tell everybody so you can make sure that person gets dipped in po- boiling water. No. This is talking about a known issue. Everybody already knows. Everyone's already aware. Why on earth would Paul tell the church, the whole body of believers, to deal with this? Go back and check your notes on yeast and leaven. Sin affects the whole body and eventually it will infect the whole body. Now, finally, I'm going to make one more comment, and I'm going to run for the door. Because this is invariably where I'm going to step in it. All right? Church discipline applies to sin in every area of life. We too often look at this fifth chapter and say, well, church discipline just deals with people who are engaged in some type of sexual sin or sexual immorality. This is what we're going to do with someone who's caught in adultery. This is what we're going to do with someone who's caught in practicing homosexuality or or, or whatever. No. Listen, church discipline is not about a certain type or class of sin. Church discipline is redemptive love being played out by the members of a family who are holding one another accountable and calling for the best and the highest in each one of us, knowing that there are going to be shortcomings, there are going to be failures, there are going to be sins, there are going to be falling downs, but we are not going to shoot our wounded. We're going to pick them up and restore them in Jesus' name. You see, I hope and pray there's a church we don't have to do this. I, I hope and pray as individual believers that you never have to be a part of such a serious action as what's outlined here in this passage when Paul simply says, Expel that man. But sometimes it's, it has to happen. It needs to happen. Please understand, biblical church discipline always seeks the good of the individual restoration of fellowship, righteous living, holiness of heart. Do you know why? Obviously not. You're not going to answer me. Look around you. Turn your head. Look around you. Oh, come on, people. Your next swivel. God made you wonderfully and marvelously, fearfully made. Look around you. These are brothers and sisters in Christ. He has called us to be disciples. Disciples. Discipleship is a call to be a learner of this. And please do not correct my grammar on this one, Miss Celia. It also calls for us to be a liver, not the organ, a doer of this. Being a disciple means that we are hearers and doers of the word as we surrender to the lordship of Jesus Christ. Whenever we do that and we come together as a body, we have a shared responsibility. Listen, I know that in this congregation, we have some deacons. We have some people who have pastor hearts. We got sheepdogs in here among the flock. And I'm so thankful that they're here. But we all have an obligation to watch over one another, to safeguard one another, to to protect one another, to fight for one another, to do battle whether it be on our knees or on our feet in Jesus' name. The best discipline in the church is when we allow the Holy Spirit of God to convict us of our sin and call us to a response of repentance, confession, faith, surrender. You can't do that. You won't do that until you first find yourself at a place where you'll surrender to Him as Lord and Savior, becoming a part of the family of God, part of the church. But when you become a part of it, please understand, you place yourself under the watch care of your brothers and sisters. And we hold one another accountable. If you see something wrong, it doesn't mean you go and spread it all over town and make sure that the church has an issue so they can have a big meeting and do something that's going to make the 10 o'clock news. It may mean you go to a brother or sister in private and say, I saw this. I heard this. I hurt for you. Is everything okay? Are you struggling in this area? Can I, can we help you? And in doing so, we strengthen the body. And the church becomes stronger rather than weaker, greater rather than lesser. And do you know what? That's how it ought to be. Do you know why? Because we have the greatest, strongest, mightiest God that there is. And we serve and follow the greatest and the strongest and the mightiest Savior of all. And we have a family that God has built. And he has a purpose and a plan and a function for us. And we can and we will fulfill it if we will do it his way. I just want to ask you, are you part of that? Have you given your heart and life to Him? Have you connected yourself to the bride of Christ in the way that God is leading you to do? And if you could say no to any of that, I just want to ask you, what are you waiting for? What are you waiting for? Don't miss the opportunity to let God connect you to His people and lead you through life doing what He wants you to do. I promise you this. What he will do with you, in you, and through you is greater than anything you will ever do on your own. Hear his voice. If he's calling, obey him. Surrender to whatever his call is. And let him do in your life that which will bring glory and honor to him and great joy to you. Let's bow our heads together. In just a moment, we're going to stand together and sing a song of invitation. Not in order to stretch a service out, but rather to give each one of us an opportunity to respond. If the Spirit of God has spoken, if the Word of God has touched a chord, there's something you know you need to do, something that God is calling you to or leading you to. If that's the case, I want to tell you, when we stand in a moment and begin to sing, I'd love for you to share that with me. Maybe you just need to talk to God right where you are. He's ready to listen. He's ready to speak to you. Maybe you want someone to pray with you. I'm right here. Maybe you need today to profess your faith. Say, I believe in Jesus Christ. He is my Lord and Savior. I've surrendered my heart and my life to Him, but I've never told anybody that. Today you can profess Him publicly. Come, share that with me. I won't put you on the spot or embarrass you, but I'd love to help you take the first steps of your faith. Maybe God is leading you to connect to this church family, to become a part of this body, this, this representation of the bride of Christ. If he's calling you, would you surrender? Hear his voice. Be obedient. Father, I thank you for loving us. Even in those moments when it's difficult, those moments when you discipline us for poor choices, for those times when we struggle in our faith, we struggle to walk in your way, thank you for not giving up on us. And Father, I pray for us in this room this morning. I'm confident there's someone here who doesn't know you. I pray that your spirit is drawing them, convicting them, convincing them that Jesus is their hope, their life. That today you would draw them to yourself. That this would be the day of their salvation. Father, there are probably some brothers and sisters in this very room right now who are struggling, hurting, battling against sin in their lives. It's hidden. It's covered up. No one knows about it but you and them. And today, uh, sweaty palms are hanging out. Lord, I just prayed that today they would place that sin at your feet. Turn from it. Walk away. Leave it with you. And Lord, if they need help, I pray that they would find that help in this room. That they would find help with you. They would find help with me. They would find help with a brother or sister who can keep them accountable to stay on the right path. Father, I understand that there are a multitude of needs across this room. I can't see them. I see the faces. You see the hearts. You know the needs. And now you stand ready to meet those needs. Father, I pray that you would just lead us to a place where we would humble ourselves before you and receive the grace that you offer. And Father, take these moments. Take these moments and do in each life that which bring glory and honor to you. Be exalted in the lives of the people in this room, this morning, right now. For I pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.